Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to over there. I am the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber, and look who is back in the studio with me today. It's our old friend, the evening show executive producer, one of my many bosses, Joseph Peters. Joseph, how have you been? I mean, the only boss that matters, right? Exactly right. The only one that shows up on this podcast, at least. Uh, It's been good, man. It's been really good. I uh, moved to the Burbs. I'm now a suburban, uh, double-income, no-kids lifestyle guy, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm not going to lie. So you're out of downtown Denver. Yes. So you're out of the walking area. Yes. You've changed now to a driver from a walker. Uh, yeah. Right? So my how's ha- that going? So my half mile commute walking has turned into like a five mile commute that involves highways and stuff. So uh, in the time since we last met, I did get my driver's license. I am Whoa. able to drive. It's a big deal. Nice. Uh, I, you know, I took the driving test. The guy was like, "You got a lot of things to work on, but uh, here you go." Remember he that? said, "He said you're not great, but." Go out there anyway. Remember when we did that story about how Colorado is one of the easiest states to pass a driving test? It is. Go figure. We weren't wrong. Um, So there was that. Uh, And I am a bad driver. Imagine not driving for five years. Imagine uh, imagine a shaky 18-year-old in a 30-year-old's body trying to drive on the highway. And uh, that's basically me. Well, that's a little scary, knowing that there scary. are folks like you out there. And so you're probably one of the ones that I'm cursing as as me being a excellent driver, as you would hear in Rain Man, yep. that, uh, that you're, get out of my road! I don't want to be on your road. I want to be as far <laughs> out of your way as possible. That's what I've learned, man. Like, my wife is an excellent driver. She'll bully people. She'll make them get out of the way. No, man, I want to do 50 miles an hour on the highway. I want everybody to go around me. I don't want to have to worry about being rear-ended, having to merge with anything. I'm good, dude. Like, just give me a straight line and don't make me go anywhere else. Yeah. There are some tricky situations when you're new and then you have to throw in all these oddballs that have now moved not only to Denver, but there's a lot of other big cities that have seen a, a large growth. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it, it, it can throw you off, dude. It can I, really throw you off. I'm telling you, man. I, for all you Denver people, my commute is Wadsworth, 6th Avenue, and that crazy intersection at Broadway and Spear. So, yeah, it's really great to be driving, man. I really enjoy it. Have you tried taking the light rail into work? So the light rail is definitely an option. Um, I have been taking the bus quite a bit. Um, I don't mind the bus. When uh, We'll get to this interview in a minute, but I heard the statistic that transit is 20% 20 times safer than driving a car. It feels like it. I get it, man. Like There's nothing like getting onto a bus and being able to know that I don't have to think until I get to my destination. That's because somebody else is doing the driving for 50. Yes. You know, that's yep. that's why and and on a train it's even safer because you are barrier separated, track separated, lane separated from everybody. And it, it's wonderful and I would I would stick to taking the bus every day if it wasn't four times as long as driving. Yeah, exactly. I, I rode the train. I told this story a couple weeks ago when I rode the train uh, for this event downtown, and uh, I got on. I drove to the Arapahoe station, got on the train, took me ah, 45 minutes just from there to get to downtown, and then going back home, it was about an hour and five minutes. I would have made that trip in 35. Yep. You would have doubled the time. You would have been more stressed, though. I guarantee you that. 
So have you listened to any of the episodes the past two months? I've been dabbling, man. I check out every episode with Nicole Brady. She's one of my favorites. Oh, she is the greatest. Uh, I've had her on, and we've covered a lot of ter- territory over the last couple of months. I would expect nothing less. Um, of course, Nicole is the greatest. Uh, Andy Bosselman with Streets Blog Denver. Interesting he had, guy. had him in for an hour. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I had Skylar uh, McKinley from AAA in for an hour. You know how I feel about Skylar Oh, McKinley. he's the best. He is the greatest. Yep. Uh, I talked to the auto professor. Uh, and Carvana, and I went international, spoke to a guy in England about electric scooters, and also somebody from Toronto. So we can go international now because I have the WhatsApp app. <laughs> That's how uh, I, apparently everybody in Europe, because to call people at different countries, they have to figure out a way to do it yep. without their calling plans. So the way they do it is they use the WhatsApp app, and everybody calls via Wi-Fi. You know who else uses the WhatsApp app? Who? Jared Kushner. He does? Yeah. Could we call him? We probably we should. All right, he might it. be the he might be the Department of Transportation secretary before too long. There you go. Let's give it a shot. I also want to thank all the new listeners to the show. We had some record download numbers this month, so thanks to everybody for making the show so successful. By the way, I gave out a we've given out different phone numbers over the years, uh, uh, trying to get uh, listener feedback, and some of the phone numbers have been well not working right. So. I set up my voice, since I used my voicemail here at work sparingly at best. In fact, I had a uh, voicemail message on there that said, hey, I I don't check this voicemail, but uh, every one or two or three years. And so if you want to leave a message, that's fine, but I'll get back to you in 2015 or 16. That was the last message that I had on there. And so it's been a while since I recorded one. So anyway, I decided to... uh, Use my voicemail here at the uh, TV station to be the official driving you crazy uh, comment line. So if you want to make a question, uh, make, uh, make a comment, give us some feedback, give us some gripe, what, whatever you want to do, here is now the official new number. It's uh, area code 303-832-0217. I've tried it out. It works. It goes right to the voicemail. Doesn't even ring. Exactly. No one will be picking no up. No one this will phone. be poking. No, no, no. No annoying ringing for you. Nope. Three zero three eight three two zero two one seven. And uh, you know what? Good, bad, or indifferent. Go ahead and leave a message. And actually, what I'd like to do is is get a. Uh, uh, how about a uh, roll call, a check in? We used to do this in when I was working at KOA Radio overnight. The KOA signal is a clear channel signal, so it booms across the country. It really goes up to Canada and Mexico and all across the United States. And there's actually some people internationally say that they could sometimes pick it up. And this was before the Internet, before you're picking everything up on the Internet. So I, And we used to do check-ins. Hey, if, if you're from wherever, farthest person away gets a prize. And, and, and we'd get calls from all over the country. It was great. So I, I'd like to get calls. From some, not, don't just say that you know you're living over there in uh, South Denver and, and you're calling from Bangladesh. I don't want to hear that. I, I want really some wherever you are. We want to hear a check in. Well, and what I really want is pause the podcast, call the number 303-832-0217. Thank you. Uh, shout at us. Get it off your chest, man. Oh, Let yeah. it all out. G- give us two minutes of shouting, uh, and I'll even pay for the prize, man. The furthest away by the end of June, I'll go- I'll buy the ten even if you gift card. Even if you don't speak English, that's fine. We have Google Translate. Yes, we could figure it out, right? Can't right. we? Anyway, three zero three eight three two zero two one seven. We'll see if this works, and uh, if it doesn't, well, we'll keep trying. Shout it, Jason. Uh, later on in the show, we have a special guest. We're going to speak with Dr. Wes Marshall. He's the assistant professor in the College of Engineering, Design, and Computing at the University of Colorado. Denver. Denver. 
and he's a co-author of a study that shows that bike lanes lower road fatalities. And not just for bike riders, but for drivers and pedestrians, too. It really is a fascinating study, and I have some interesting takes on this. We'll, we'll explore that in just a little bit. But first, Dateline, Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Workers processing cars for an upcoming auto auction found a wanted man inside the trunk of one of the cars. Oh. 25-year-old Leon Parks of New York City is wanted for parole violations and weapons charges. An auction worker, he was cleaning the car, taking pictures of it. He opened up the trunk of the Dodge Challenger Hellcat that came in from the New York City area, and he found the wanted man in there. He said he ran to go get some water for the guy who wasn't moving very much. Police say he was treated at the hospital before then being taken to jail. It must have been a pretty bad parole violation if he was hiding in the trunk of a car and he'd been in there for that long. He probably thought he was out scot-free and then he forgot, uh, how do I get out of here? And I probably should have brought some water. That is the most alarming thing, that somebody found him in the trunk instead of him popping out of the trunk. Surprise, yes. <laughs> here I am. It's worse when it's a casket. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> at the morgue. Uh, a week in, and it's already a disaster. Hoboken, New Jersey's e-scooter rental program kicked off about a week ago after New Jersey legalized the use of electric vehicles. And Hoboken residents are now complaining that the riders are breaking traffic rules and making the roads even more dangerous. That's a shocker. One TV station reporter caught people riding on the sidewalk, running red lights, going the wrong way down one-way streets. Um, I caught morning show anchor Molly Hendrickson and morning show meteorologist Lisa Hidalgo breaking the law on their Facebook page by riding two-to-one scooter. Can't do that. You're not supposed to do that. do that. They do it anyway. I think that was a doctored photo. I think they were doing that staging Photoshop. Yes. Uh, the bad riding behavior is such a concern that police now in Hoboken have put out warning signs warning the two-wheeled terrors to obey the law. One furious driver said he's seen so many kids riding around without helmets, weaving in and out of traffic. He says it's hard enough to avoid pedestrians, but this is even more dangerous. The company that operates these scooters have set up informational tents to educate riders on safety and traffic laws. That'll help. I, that's exactly where I'm going. As soon as I get out of here, I'm going to try to find an informational tent. It's unclear what local police will do if scooter users continue to disregard the warning signs. Because, you know, just across from New Jersey is New York City. And they are one of the last states that has yet to determine and legalize e-bikes and scooters. However... There is now a bill in the New York City legislature that uh, could bring those scooters and e-bikes to New York City. Good. Because the New York City Council, they banned motorized scooters back in 2004 because they think it's a safety concern. And obviously it is. When you're mixing that many pedestrians, that many bike riders, and that many uh, vehicles in Manhattan, and then you throw these scooters in there? It's chaos. I mean, th that is chaos, man. You can't do that. You, get, you have to keep them off the sidewalks if you're going to go that route. Hoboken is not Manhattan. And uh, it, <laughs> you think? <laughs> I do think. Um, but it seems to me that this is a case more of bad behavior than it is of the actual scooters. Now, I think the scooters allow people then to behave badly. You give them this device that you are easily uh, tempted to behave badly. And people will behave badly. Correct. I think it's all a behavioral thing. Not that the informational tents are going to do uh, jack or squat, but 
They're out there. They should instead have informational principles offices that they drag you into if you're caught doing bad behavior on the scooter. The problem is that people ruin everything. Yep. It's 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 really people. That's true. Um and, and in this case, it's probably also a factor that the local government hasn't really set up many of the rules governing this or setting up a system to regulate those people breaking the rules. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. If you don't have any enforcement, then you're not going to have anybody caring that they're breaking the rules. Not even enforcement. You don't have rules, period. Like You really don't even have rules outside of the basic guidelines that are out there. I know how dangerous these things can be. I, I haven't ridden one of the electric ones, but when I was living downtown in downtown Denver here in the late 90s, I used to have this gas-powered, little gas-powered scooter. Same kind of engine that you would have on a uh, gas trimmer, right? Yep. With a two-stroke where okay. you mix the oil and the gas. And it, it, it was loud, so people would hear me coming down the street. And I would just ride it in the, in the street, not really on the sidewalk. But there weren't any other scooters. There were some bicyclists, but... but the downtown area was nowhere near as crowded as it, as it is now. So I wouldn't do it now, but I loved riding that thing. I would ride it over the Rockies games, and I would do two persons. Me and my, my wife would get on, and we'd go riding two people down the down the street. Um, yeah, some of the pedestrians might get a little bit mad at me, but oh well. well I, look at you, man. When you were a scooter rider, you were in favor of the scooters. Now you're not a scooter rider. Oh, no, I'm still in favor of the scooters. I like the scooters. I'm in favor of scooters, but I'm also in favor of people riding them correctly. Behave better, folks. That's that's what it comes to. Tell us your to. worst scooter experience. 303-832-0217. There you have it. Joseph, I'm sure that you would agree that it's safer to be in a car around traffic than on a bike or on your feet. But new research out of the University of Colorado Denver shows that cities with a robust infrastructure of bike lanes makes the road safer for everyone. It sounds counterintuitive. To explain why this happens, we've invited Dr. Wesley Marshall, assistant professor in the College of Engineering, Design, and Computing, and the co-author of a study to be here on the show. Dr. Marshall, thank you so much for being here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of the study... I want to ask you how you became involved in this research. What made you think about studying bike lanes? Well, it was actually um, a paper we'd written and published around 2011 where we started noticing these big picture trends. Because um, like you said, if you go like a mile on a bike, it's about 10 times more dangerous than a mile in a car. At the same time, a mile on, a, on transit is about 20 times safer than a mile in a car. So you would think, given those numbers, that a city with a ton of transit would be safer than a conventional city that's sort of based on driving. At the same time, you would think that a city with a lot of bicycling um, would be less safe. But the reality was that we saw these big picture trends of all these cities that had high bicycling were safest. Um, Even looking across internationally at countries like the Netherlands, they have high biking and they're one of the safest countries in the world. So that first paper set up those trends and, you know, threw out a bunch of hypotheses as to why this is the case. This latest paper you know, we collected a ton of data to really try to figure out why, what's happening behind, underneath all this. Do you ride a bike? Is that why you have this interest in bikes? Um, I do, but um, I don't think that, I, I'm just trying to figure out a way to make cities safer. I mean, that's really my, my bottom line thing. I do ride a bike quite often, but um, the, the, what we found in this research is that's not just safer for bikes, it's that ends up being safer for everybody. Yeah, because the essence of your study looks at the relationship between what uh, the city does in terms of infrastructure with bike lanes and those cities without any bike lanes. Yeah, so we, we tried to account for 
all the various hypotheses as to why this could be happening, and one of them was infrastructure. So how are these cities built differently? Um, you know, some are more compact than others, took into account that. Some have, you know, more lanes, less lanes, things like that. And one of the things we looked at, because we were thinking about these high bicycling cities, is the infrastructure we build for bicyclists. Is, like, is that part of it? Is it um, the bike lanes or the sharrows or even the protected and, and separated lanes? So we tried to you know, it was honestly a, a bear to go through this data, but we looked at satellite imagery and tried to pick out when each piece of infrastructure was built, looking at old images and figure out when for all these different cities. And um, my student, Nick, um, I think, wasn't happy after all that work, but uh, we, we got a great data set out of it. Why do protected bike lanes then help lower road fatalities for all road users? Well, one of the things I think is happening is it's reducing car speeds. Um we did include speed as a variable, but the only speed data we could really get was the, at the city level. So it's really hard to maybe see some of those things that are happening. Um, so a lot of the cities that are building these more protected bike lanes, I think that in part is making the streets a little bit slower. Um, and when you reduce speeds when a crash happens, um, you have an exponential decrease in the severity of the crash. So our outcome variable is really looking at fatalities and severe injuries. A lot of safety studies really focus on just overall fender benders, but I'm trying to look at it like a health statistic, because obviously dying on the roads is not good for your health. So that was sort of the idea behind it, is look at it like, like we do with any other health um, outcome. And you know, our cities, our countries are killing so many people on the roads that it feels like it should be looked at in that way. Can you clarify for me, um, one, of the, one of the things that came up in your data was that cities with more bicycling saw safer roads, generally speaking. And, and I wanted to clarify, is that cities with more bicycling that also have built out the infrastructure? Or does that hold true for cities that have maybe a higher rate of bicycling, but that hasn't made the investment in the infrastructure as much? So that was the underlying question of this latest study. Like, is it just the safety numbers that's, that's making it safer for everybody? Or is it the infrastructure um, that we built for these things. And with this latest paper, we found that it really wasn't um, the number of bicyclists out there. Like maybe that would, um, we've done a study in the past looking at data in Boulder, and the more bicyclists at an intersection, the safer it is per bicyclist. So maybe you'd get better safety um, for bicyclists with just having a high number of bicyclists out there. But to get the safety for everybody, um, you know, one of the main things we found was that it was the infrastructure. It was the protected bikeways, the cycle tracks, the separated bike facilities that was making it. Um, this is one of the biggest variables we found making it safer for, for everybody. Yeah, because in the conclusion portion of your study, it says, and I'm quoting, our results suggest that more bicyclists on the road is not as important as the infrastructure we build for them. So it seems to me that the infrastructure, as Joseph was talking about and you just mentioned, is really more important than if anyone is actually using the bike lanes. And that's my belief when it comes to sort of all transportation. We want to give people options, um, put more options out there, um, you know, whatever comes up in your life. I mean, even if you build a transit system that nobody's using, just the ability to use it if something happens, if gas prices double or triple, if... Um, you know, for some reason, your car is in the shop, or whatever happens, having those options. And the same thing sort of goes for bicycling. And the, the best thing about these sort of protected and separated tech facilities is that it means that, you know, a greater subset of our population can actually bicycle. Um, you know, you might be able to even bring your kids to bike in a downtown area. And you know, 10 years ago, that was unheard of. But as we build these sort of things out, you're getting a different type of bicyclist able to use these systems. So logically... With that in mind, it, would, would you think that if a city just built wider sidewalk areas, maybe narrowed streets, regardless if anybody was walking or biking on those sidewalk areas, it would be a safer environment for everybody? 
I, I do think there's some, at some level, there's some, if you build it, they will come. So even if you look outside and people aren't crossing the street as pedestrians, um, part of the reason might be the street is so unsafe that nobody wants to. Um, and the way engineers look at these things, we use things like warrants to say, well, we need to have a certain number of people crossing in order to do a safe pedestrian crossing. Um, and that's sort of backwards. The reality is, like, well, if you build a safe pedestrian crossing, you might find these people that wanted to walk or bike all along. Um, and that's what a lot of cities are finding, is that as you build this, people start using it, people that weren't there before. Um, maybe they're getting out of their cars, and taking a different mode. Maybe uh, these are people doing it more recreationally. Um, but I, I think that's what a lot of cities are missing, is that is the more utilitarian-style um, walking, biking infrastructure. Um, and it does make a big difference over the long haul. And it, it's a, it is a long-haul thing. You look at a city like Portland, um, a lot of cities can say, well, we can never be Portland. But they invested for like a series of 30 years. Like They weren't Portland before. It took them a long time to get there. We're speaking with Dr. Wes Marshall, assistant professor in the College of Engineering, Design, and Computing at the University of Colorado, Denver, and the co-author of a study about bike lanes making roads safer for everyone. Now talk to me about retrofitting. I mean, a city like Denver, it feels like you got a lot of streets that are kind of built, and there's not a lot you can do with them. So how would you build out more of a bike infrastructure in a city like this to encourage that sort of multimodal transit that we're talking about? Well, Denver, there's a little bit of a double-edged sword. We have these these streets that are so wide in the downtown. Like we have, you know, I often come in down Larimer Street to Auraria Campus, and there's four lanes of traffic. Um, when I come in at 9 in the morning, there's almost nobody on it. I mean, I can, as a bicyclist, I can sometimes close my eyes and kind of go back and forth across all four lanes and not really worry about getting hit. So Please don't tell have... me you do that and say we while you're doing it. <laughs> or do. I, I, I <laughs> I, I don't do that, but okay. I, but I can take up an entire lane and not be bothered. Um, but that that's me as a bicyclist. Like that's not the kind of thing I would take my kids on. So because we're so over capacity most of the time, you do have the ability to maybe retrofit car lanes into bike facilities. Um, and the magical thing about doing that is that you think if you do the traditional traffic models that you're going to have this traffic Armageddon of congestion. But whenever that happens, whenever cities do do that thing, it actually increases speeds over the city. Like people find other ways around and it increases other options and more people might get out there biking. So you don't get the congestion problems that you think you would um, because a lot of the things we do in transportation is really counterintuitive. So um, that is one thing I think Denver can do is we can sort of retrofit the areas that are over capacity. You look at Larimer Square, um, that is two lanes. At some point, you know, that is much smaller than every other sort of downtown road. But we don't, we never really thought we should do the same thing to other roads. Like, even though that is such a success story, um, we haven't decided maybe we should maybe make other roads two lanes and see what can happen in those places. There's a theory about traffic called induced demand. You build it and they will come. Do you think there's that same induced demand for sidewalks, bicycle lanes, that sort of thing? If you build them, they will then come? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, same thing for cars. Like whenever we widen a highway, we don't get the, the benefits in terms of what we think would be congestion delay because more people start using that highway because they know there's new lanes there. Um, so that is sort of a, a dead end in terms of how we fix a problem like congestion. In reality, congestion is not what we're really trying to fix. We're really trying to help people get where they're going, um, access the things and the goods that they need. So increasing options, so increasing transit, increasing bicycling and walking, walking they, they can give people the same accessibility um, that we're looking for. 
So did you find a difference in protected bike lanes, ones with cones between the bikes and the cars, and non-protected lanes that just have paint on the streets? Interestingly, we, we did. Um, I thought it would be sort of the same result, but when we um, replace just overall bike lanes, all the painted ones, or even the sharrows, which are those lanes with the chevrons where you're supposed to share the lane with a car, um, those were not significant in terms of being associated with better safety. It was really the protected and separated ones that, that made the biggest difference. Um, so that it was definitely a difference that was interesting to us in our, our results. So w- the argument that I've always heard against those sort of protected bike ra- bike lanes, because when we see them, you see the stanchions, right, or the, the yeah. little white poles for people who aren't familiar. People just say those are ugly, right? Like that's been the overwhelming argument against them is that they're just not visually appealing. So is there a more aesthetically pleasing model or is it just kind of a, eh, this is it? Yeah, I mean, the thing, it was hard for us to control for just the differences between how those are designed, but there's a huge spectrum of protected bikeways. Um, first time I saw a great one in, in North America, I think it was in Vancouver in 2009 or 10, um, and they have this, their network is similar to Denver's, where they have these big one-way streets, um, and one of the main ones coming into downtown, they took one lane of traffic and turned it into a, a two-way cycle track, and the protection that they have wasn't those little candlestick plastic white bollards it was these huge planters so it's amazing you're sort of in a world with trees on both sides of you in the middle of what used to be a busy traffic street um so driving up or biking up that you have these big concrete planters between you as opposed to those cones and not only is it much more beautiful it's actually better protection i mean those cones you know they're not going to stop a car from hitting a bicyclist they're just there to give the impression of protection. We're speaking with Dr. Wes Marshall, assistant professor in the College of Engineering, Design, and Computing at the University of Colorado, Denver, and co-author of a study about bike lanes and how they make the road safer for everybody. So what about moving bike lanes away from traffic altogether, like Denver has and some other cities have, along a creek area? Like here in Denver, we have the Cherry Creek Bike Path completely separated from the roads. What about that and making it safer for everybody involved when you s- separate bikes and cars they can't run into each other well most cities have found that that is those are great solutions for recreational biking but they don't serve the utilitarian need i think the cherry creek trail is maybe an exception that does serve a lot of utilitarian functions um but most cities where they have those type of where they have that ability to build sort of that off street cycle track that it, it doesn't really get people to where they actually need to go so you know, I'm going to Louisville next week, and I was talking to someone down there, and that's one of the problems they're seeing. Like, they have these nice sort of riverway bicycling and walking facilities, but they're not actually getting people you know, to work or to restaurants and that sort of stuff. They're more for recreation, not for utilitarian. So I think you really need to have a network of both to, to get the biggest impact. So is this really a case of then barrier separating bikes from pedestrians and pedestrians from cars and bi- so just barrier separating basically everybody from each other o- or is it maybe that the bikers were actually the problem weaving in and out of traffic and making that uh, a dangerous situation and you have to remove them from the equation and then everybody can be safer um i think it's the former rather than the latter like we did a study a couple of years ago looking at scofflaws bicyclists and sort of why they're out there breaking the law um and what we found is that they're doing it in the same way that you know, every driver when they get in the car breaks the law too. We don't think of a driver as, as a criminal. Like they, 
go, you know, five, ten miles over the speed limit. Um, you may maybe not come to a complete stop at a, at a stop sign. Um, but they're doing rational things. We would never say those people are, are criminals necessarily. Um, and what we found is that bicyclists, like we did a survey, we had actually got almost 18,000 respondents from all over the world. And bicyclists are, are doing the same thing. They're doing sort of the rational thing. Like when they're at a red light with nobody around, they sort of scoot through, um, sometimes for their own feeling of safety, where they can kind of establish themselves in the lane up ahead. Um, so I do think it's, it's partially the former. But the thing is, um, it's, it, it helps maybe to separate bicyclists and pedestrians from cars in the way we build cities now. In a perfect world, we wouldn't have to. Like We would have the cars going slow enough where they wouldn't be severe injuries or fatalities when they do hit a pedestrian or cyclist. And sort of that magic number is usually around 20 miles per hour. Once you get sort of over that, you get the exponential increase in severity of injuries. You know, If you build cities where car speeds are lower than that, I don't think you're going to need the protection as much. And that's what you know, you're seeing in some European cities and streets where They've actually gone in the opposite direction. Um, they've done these things called shared spaces where they remove any vertical separation, they remove any signage, any traffic light, and it's sort of almost like a free-for-all out there where you can, you know, as a pedestrian, you can close your eyes, walk into the street like you're Moses parting the Red Sea, and cars will meander around you. Everyone's going slow enough where it sort of functions like a ice skating rink does. Like, you think if you put these metal sharp skates in everybody and throw them in a rank, it would be this dangerous situation. But people are able to meander around each other, um, and that's the same thing that happens when you slow speeds down in cities. And I think we've seen videos of those areas in India, Southeast Asia, where they have motorbikes and pedestrians and cars and buses all trying to mingle around the same areas, and and somehow they're all making their way along these roads and not running into each other and killing each other. Yeah, those examples you see from India, um, it sort of gets at what I'm talking about, but not quite. I mean, I think it it has the, the same sort of lawlessness to it, but uh, it's it's a little bit different. I think it's hard to explain when, you know, there's some, you know, there's um, Drakton, this, this city in the Netherlands, where they took their most dangerous intersection, um, and it was a typical conventional traffic light. And they got rid of all the signage, they got rid of the, the light, and they made a big roundabout. Um, but as a pedestrian or cyclist, you can sort of go anywhere at any time through there. And they basically eliminated crashes from the intersection. Like the only signage they do have are these, um, these water fountains where the, the more traffic there is in the intersection, the higher those things shoot up water. So when you're coming towards the intersection, you might know to stay away from it because those water fountains are visible. Um, so it's been an amazing transition in terms of what we think of transportation could and should be. And it's just so almost sort of un-American in terms of how we we look at our transportation system in terms of these very strict rules and regulations. Traffic light tells you when to go. Um, in that case, you really need to make eye contact with other road users in order to get through the intersection. So instead of sitting there waiting for the traffic light to tell you when to go, um, instead you're looking to see, well, where is everybody? Um, it's much more of a coordinated sort of social type engagement in the transportation system. And I think you just described why it would not work in America because the eye contact <laughs> and the needing directions are two things that we are not good at. Yeah. Free for all is not so good here in the States. We'll see. There are some places that are trying it. I think West Palm Beach and there's, uh, I know there's Cambridge, Massachusetts area where I'm from. There's um, an example of it as well. And it seems to be working there so far. But I think it's such a transition that it would, um, it would really be a while before I think it, it ever got bigger. 
I was reading through part of your research, and it really sounds in in the research that it was congestion that helped slow down the traffic in these cities more than just about anything else. Yes, putting in the bike lanes can help narrow the lanes, maybe reducing the speeds. And if whenever you narrow lanes, it makes you feel uncomfortable. You start slowing down naturally. But it sounds like the congestion was really a, a big key of how to slow down traffic in these cities. So some cities, though, have now instituted congestion pricing to reduce the number of cars. Therefore, congestion, you would think, would be easing on those roads and then would lead to more dangerous situations with bicyclists and, and cars and pedestrians because you have fewer cars and so you have higher speeds. Well, a little bit of congestion is a good thing. If your city has solved congestion, you've probably failed as a city in a lot of other ways, at least economically. Um, it's sort of, they go hand in hand. Like if you have a, a vital city, you're going to have some congestion. And like we talked about before, induced demand and trying to build your way out of it has just shown not to work. So the only thing that does seem to work in that way is something like a congestion charging, if you really are trying to char- reduce congestion. Um, yeah, at the same time, I think London has their, their cordon char- charging, where if you go into the downtown with a car, you know, you're charged, I think it's like 18 to 20 American dollars um, every day. And I, they have seen speeds increase in the downtown, but the average speed, I think, went from like, you know, seven or eight to like 11 or 12. So it's still, you know, sort of below the magic number in terms of safety. Um, you know, and if you start seeing much higher speeds, it might be a design issue. It could be an enforcement issue. A lot of times we build these these big, almost highway-like streets in our downtown areas, and you're inducing these high speeds. Um, a lot of places now are mo- moving more towards self-enforcing streets that if you want the speeds to be less than 30 or less than 25 or less than 20, you make it difficult to go that fast where it feels unsafe to do so in denver uh, i often carry a radar gun around with me and i've seen i've caught with my own radar gun just collecting data i've seen cars go over like 70 miles an hour on mlk and um out where i live near stapleton and the speed limit there was 30 um so that's a street that is designed to facilitate that and that's sort of the mentality of transportation engineering there's a factor in safety like we want to build our streets so people if they are going fast they'll be safe um and the counter notion now is that we're trying to make it so you know you're going to feel unsafe if you go that fast have you looked at the effect of electric scooters thrown into the mix um we haven't been able to study that yet there's always difficulty getting data with some of these these new things um we've studied uber and lyft and one of my students actually drove for them for a year to collect data but we haven't really been able to dig into the to the scooters yet how has your report been received by the biking community Uh, the biking community seems to to like it um for the most part i think they see it as almost like ammunition where they can use this to try to um advocate for more protected bike lanes although i do get some people saying that um you know, me saying that bicycling is, you know, 10 times less safe than driving, that's the wrong message to send. In reality, you know, that is just a per-mile number. Um, you know, the average bicycle trip on a per-mile basis is 10 times less safe than driving, but it's different from place to place. It's going to be much safer to bicycle in Boulder um, than in a lot of other cities, and there's some differences along those lines, too. And have you received any pushback from drivers or other cities about your study no because i think because we're not focused on bicyclist safety we're really focused on making cities safer um so we're looking at driver safety we're looking at vehicle occupant safety 
and you know we're interested in pedestrian safety too so we're looking at it overall and like these cities are killing much fewer people i mean we're looking at you know the highest level of bike facilities they're looking at over 40 close to 50 percent fewer fatalities um per population and and those are significant number of people i mean our country is killing over 40,000 people a year on the roads and we treat it almost as the cost of doing business as opposed to something we can actually fix well, I think a lot of that has to do with people drinking and driving, impaired driving, drowsy driving, not wearing seatbelts, speeding, that sort of thing, more than it is the infrastructure that we're driving on. Um, I think it's both. I, I think it, it happens, um, you know, like I'm talking about roads like Martin Luther King Boulevard in Denver, where they are designed with that factor of safety where you can go fast and feel safe going fast. And Research has shown that people tend to drive the way the road tells them to as opposed to what the speed limit is telling them to. So when a crash does happen, it's much more likely to be severe. So there are some design elements, especially in cities where you can improve those things. But, of course, all the other stuff um, is a part of it, um, you know, drinking and driving, drug and driving, um, drowsy, all, all that stuff does play a role for sure. Dr. Marshall, we appreciate your time, and if anybody in the audience is interested in reading more about your study, I see that it's recently published in the Journal of Transport and Health. It will be on my list of uh, reads that I need to look for uh, every month. Appreciate it, your time very much. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you, sir. All right, again, thank you to uh, Dr. Marshall. If you can come across the Journal of Transport and Health, I'm sure you just look it up. Do the, do an internet search, and you can. You're probably just better oh, yeah. off Googling Dr. Marshall. And, and then you can find there. it right there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'll recount my road trip that I'll be on this weekend. This weekend, I'm coming up to a uh, baton twirling road trip. We are going to Hutchinson, Kansas, which is just outside of Wichita. Okay. It's about a seven-hour drive. Plus, we have to deal with the one-hour time change to central time from mountain time. So I'll lose an hour going there. Uh, it should be an interesting trip. Sure, I'm going to have stories to tell. Somebody said when I'm there, I should go to the underground salt mines. Oh. And apparently they also have some air and space museum that is supposed to be one of the best in the country. I think Apollo 13, I think one of the, I think the original capsule from Apollo 13 is there. Wow. Okay. So that's supposed to be A lot of grass, to see. too. Yeah. A whole lot of nothing there, too. Well, yeah. So we will be there in... Uh, in lovely Hutchinson, Kansas, I'm hoping for good driving weather, no hurricanes or tornadoes and floods. And you got to give me a heads up about that drive, man. I'm doing that same drive in about three weeks. So. Are you? Yep. We're doing uh, we're doing uh, Vermont to here, Vermont Oof. to Denver. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a good one. That is a long one. Um, yeah. So are you gonna be here next week? I'll be here next week. You will. I'll be here the week after that. Okay, good. That'll be two in a row. Um, I wouldn't call that a streak. Um, I think we have to get at least three for a streak. Um, and then, and then maybe, so maybe this is a trend. Yes. We're trending towards <laughs> more regular appearances yes, by sir. you. Yes, Perfect. Sir. Again, if you want to reach us, you can uh, get us on Twitter at Denver seven traffic at Joseph Denver seven or that number. Once again, 303-832-0217. And, uh, if nobody calls, then I'm going to go ahead and, uh, I'll, I'll make up a voice and I'm going to call it. People will call. <laughs> the, you put out the number, you build it. They will come. There you have it. Be safe. Thanks again for being here on the uh, program again. And uh, thanks again for uh, Dr. Marshall for being here on the show. Until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the traffic guy. I am anti-e-scooter advocate Joseph Peters. <laughs> Be safe and as always, happy motoring.